So today's podcast is on the subject of Guillain-Barre syndrome. So what we're going to cover in today's podcast is what is Guillain-Barre syndrome, some of the important pathophysiology and how do we manage it. So it's going to be fundamentally how do we diagnose it, how might we go about investigating Guillain-Barre syndrome, how might we treat it. So the important things to note from the outset about Guillain-Barre syndrome is throughout most of the developed world it is the most common cause of an acute flaccid neuromuscular paralysis okay so it's very important to understand that Guillain-Barre syndrome is the most common acute flaccid neuromuscular paralysis that we know commonly comes up in um, SBA questions and therefore is an important condition to be aware of. Okay? Very, very important. So some people regard um, the word flaccid as being a lack of tone. Okay? Um, is kind of a common way of of, of expressing what it means. Discovered more than a hundred years ago, so isn't a uh, new condition uh, by any stretch of the imagination. And we now know so much more about Guillain-Barre syndrome than we did. And the immune mediated cause of Guillain-Barre syndrome, we know in much more detail than known previously. So, Guillain-Barre syndrome, if you think about it, is often post-infectious and it's immune-mediated. Guillain-Barre syndrome is post-infectious and it's immune-mediated, okay? Extensively studied um, is the subject of Guillain-Barre syndrome. We've looked at animal models, um, including in other mammals, and we really, at the end of this podcast, whenever someone mentions to you Guillain-Barre syndrome, you should think molecular mimicry, okay? Molecular mimicry. So I'm going to take the example, so I'm going to take you into an SBA question. Someone has had bloody diarrhoea. I say bloody diarrhoea to you. One of the things you may think is Campylobacter. If I said bloody diarrhea to you, you may think Campylobacter, okay? So imagine someone has had diarrhea, bloody diarrhea, and let's say it's self-limiting. So they haven't come into hospital, they've gone to their GP, okay? And the GP has taken a stool sample, or maybe the GP has advised over the phone, don't come in, because this could be like an infective gastroenteritis, uh, give us a stool sample and hand it in um, to the GP surgery and we'll send it off and see what it grows. So imagine this patient has had, um, it comes back for Campylobacter jejuni. Okay, so Campylobacter positive on the stool culture. 
what could happen. Okay, so in the context of Guillain-Barre, we know that Campylobacter is associated with Guillain-Barre syndrome. So we have got, um, not important, but we have got a molecule present, a saccharide, okay? Um, so not a lipopolysaccharide that you'll be aware of. We've got a lipooligosaccharide. So slightly different to a lipo lipopolysaccharide. But for the purposes of this, let's just interchange the two terms to make it simple. So it's present in the outer membrane of the bacteria of Campylobacter. And the fundamentally really interesting bit of physiology is that this lipooligosaccharide, similar to a lipopolysaccharide, the outer membrane of the bacterium of Campylobacter, is really similar to um, a component of peripheral nerves called uh, gangliosides, okay? So we can use lots of terminology here that just confuses it. If you think Guillain-Barre syndrome, you think molecular mimicry, there is a saccharide present in the outer membrane of Campylobacter in the bacteria that is similar to a component of peripheral nerves. So what happens? We can trigger an immune response, which has the intention of fighting the infection from Campylobacter that can lead to these um, peripheral nerves being damaged because of molecular mimicry. So fundamentally, if you want to understand Guillain-Barre syndrome, you think it's post-infectious and it's immune mediated. So imagine someone has Campylobacter, okay? Um, you then produce an immune response, okay? Against Campylobacter, the lipo oligosaccharide that's present in the outer membrane of the bacteria is very similar from a molecular standpoint to these components of peripheral nerves called ga gangliosides, okay? So you get cross-reactivity and you can get damage of peripheral nerves. Loads of infections have been linked with Guillain-Barre syndrome. Most common are gastrointestinal, so have a look out for diarrhea or diarrhea and vomiting, or respiratory illnesses. Up to 70% of patients with Guillain-Barre syndrome have had another illness, triggering illness, within the last six weeks. Okay? There we go. So, that is many important okay there was in the 70s um a vaccination against flu and there were loads of reports and all this kind of stuff that flu vaccination lo and behold um could trigger Guillain-Barre syndrome actually what we know now going back in time is that it's far more likely to get Guillain-Barre syndrome after flu infection than flu vaccination. So still greatly outweighing the, the kind of the risk benefit. It's far better to give patients flu vaccine, certainly not withhold a flu vaccination because of 
um, a theoretical risk of um, Guillain-Barre syndrome. It's got an incidence of around about two per 100,000, okay, but it's very important to know for exams and to know clinically. So we know about 70% of patients will have a triggering illness. Um, molecular mimicry is what we need to know. And we've already said that this lipooligosaccharide of Campylobacter is very similar to the gangliosides that are found in peripheral nerves. Okay? So that's very important. Very interesting experiment. If you immunize or inoculate rabbits with these lipooligosaccharides, they have, what do they develop? Well, they get a flaccid tetraplegia, okay? Which is similar to one of the variants of Guillain-Barre syndrome. So it's very important. The different um, ganglioside antibodies affect different parts. So some of them will uh, um, target myelin. Some of them will target the neuromuscular junction. Some of them... Um, will affect different parts, some will affect the nodes of ROMVA, etc. So it'll affect different bits, um, which is important to think about. So lots of variants. The typical way when we talk about an ascending polyneuropathy is the most common type, but there are other types like the Miller-Fisher variant that I'm going to mention because it can turn up in SBA questions, but I'll explain it. In a minute and there's other ones that affect the pharyngeal muscles more so affect um can kind of give you more of bulbar symptoms um than the classical ascending polyneuropathy so what how would we approach this so the giveaway in sba questions is ascending weakness Okay, it tends to be symmetrical, so symmetrical is an important thing. It tends not to relapse or remit, it tends to um, give you kind of one pattern, um, but you can get atypical variants, but we'll focus on the typical things. So it often presents within one to six weeks of a triggering illness, okay? How do we identify the person with Guillain-Barre syndrome? How do we pick out the important aspects in an exam question or if we were to see a patient? So I'm gonna to talk to you about classical presentation because it's much, uh, you can learn the rarer things, but for exams um, and clinically, know the common presentations first. So patients with Guillain-Barre syndrome, can have a pattern of proximal and distal weakness, okay, which is flaccid. Okay, we've already explained what flaccidity meant. Um, areflexia or hyperreflexia is usually present, so testing of deep tendon reflexes is always important clinically when you see someone with any pattern of weakness, okay? So, flaccid weakness an areflexia or hyperreflexia, okay? So, interestingly, 
it's non-length dependent sensory symptoms, okay? So other neuropathies such as diabetic neuropathy, toxic neuropathy, patients can report sensory disturbance in the hands followed by the feet, which normally doesn't happen. It's normally feet, then hands, um, but it's non-length dependent neuropathy. So you can get this slightly strange presentation where you have lots of sensation in the hands first, followed by the feet afterwards. Patients can also have um, involvement of the cranial nerves. So they could have problems with cranial nerve seven, so it may not be able to move their face properly. You can dis develop dysphagia. So if we think about glossopharyngeal nerve, vagus nerve and hypoglossal cranial nerves, interruptions or problems with those three cranial nerves could give you dysphagia, okay? And you can get autonomic neuropathy, which can lead to problems with blood pressure and abnormal rhythms of the heart, okay? So this problem with the autonomic nervous system is a major cause of mortality, okay? If we then get involvement of the respiratory muscles, we get big problems. And up to 30% of patients with Guillain-Barre syndrome will suffer from respiratory failure. Okay. There are lots of variants of Guillain-Barre syndrome. I'm gonna mention one, Miller-Fisher syndrome. Miller-Fisher syndrome. All that I'm going to mention is the triad of Miller-Fisher syndrome that you need to be aware of. Ophthalmoplegia, so problems with movement of the extraocular muscles. Areflexia, ataxia. So Miller-Fisher syndrome, ophthalmoplegia, areflexia, ataxia. Going the other way, ataxia, areflexia, ophthalmoplegia. Okay. So what tests might we be able to do? So um, it's basically a clinical diagnosis, Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is why it's important to think about, are there, is there a triggering event, the pattern of um, weakness, and what tends to happen to your deep tendon reflexes and the symmetrical pattern of Guillain-Barre syndrome. Okay, you can do electromyography and nerve conduction studies normally should be done at least 10 to 14 days after symptom onset because doing it too early, basically within the first week after symptom on onset can give you non-specific um, electromyography studies. Okay, um, that's what I would say about nerve conduction studies. It is an option in this investigation you would think about doing. Um, and there are specific um, electromyography studies um, that I'm not going to mention now because I, I don't think it's particularly um, beneficial to think about at the moment. If you are interested, then give them a quick Google search after you've listened to this podcast. Cerebrospinal fluid um, gives you a classic pattern. We call it albuminocytologic dissociation. 
for those of you, um, including myself, who don't like very wordy medical jargon, white cells are normal, CSF protein goes up. Okay, white cell count is normal, CSF protein goes up. That's what that word means. So if you think about what are the CSF findings classically, um, white cell count, normal, CSF protein up. And if you want to know the posh word, it's albuminocytologic dissociation, basically meaning that your CSF protein, albumin, is high, cytologic, cells, white cell count, normal. So there's a dissociation between the two. 80% of patients will have this classical CSF abnormality. So it's important. If it's present, it can strengthen your diagnosis. If it's absent, it doesn't rule it out. Okay? So very important. I'm going to mention one antibody which is your ganglioside antibody, so anti-GM1. So anti-GM1, okay? Um, which is important if you're thinking about the classical um, Guillain-Barré syndrome. You can do an MRI. It can rule out other mimics or similar things. Um, to be honest, other things can cause a quadriparesis um, or a facial diplegia, mainly something going on in the brain, so intracranial pathology or transverse myelitis. So sometimes MRI is done to rule out these other things. Okay. So also measurement of vital capacity is something that we tend to do because we want a heads up if this person's tipping into respiratory failure that we know that 30% of patients will do. Okay, how do we treat it? So two treatments. Number one, intravenous immunoglobulin. Number two, plasma exchange. IVIG or intravenous immunoglobulin has an unknown um, mechanism of action. They think by giving immunoglobulins, it may dilute the antibodies um, is a potential reason, we don't really know. So it's two grams per kilogram over five days. Plasma exchange is the second treatment option, which has possibly a more kind of elucidated mechanism of action. So plasma exchange, removal of plasma, um, I've given you some, is thought the main mechanism is to reduce pathogenic antibodies present in the plasma and complement proteins that are involved in the pathophysiology. So that's got a better mechanism of action. Um, we don't know exactly how these things work, but we have good evidence that they do work. Okay. Um, most people would agree that plasma exchange and intravenous immunoglobulin are um, as effective as each other. You can give them for longer um, if you want to. Steroids, through what's been done on it, prednisolone and intravenous methylpred, um, haven't really shown 
any benefit over placebo or in combination. So IVIG plus steroids, plasma exchange plus steroids isn't any better than plasma exchange or IVIG on their own. So treatment is with the intention of shortening the course of the illness and improving recovery. Okay. Um, so there we go. So what was the most, here's a question, what was the most common cause of acute flaccid neuromuscular weakness before Guillain-Barre syndrome? Um, well, of course, back in the olden days, um, it was polio. So polio was the most common. Because polio has virtually been eradicated, um, Guillain-Barre syndrome is the most common cause of that pattern of weakness. Fine. There's other things, okay? As with these things, um, it could be initial presentation of a neuromuscular junction disorder, okay? Um, so you might be thinking of things like uh, potentially myasthenia gravis, okay? And other neuromuscular problems. Acute intermittent porphyria, spinal cord problems, and actually some other infections, things like um, West Nile virus and things like that, okay? So distinguishing this, good history, good examination, doing the appropriate investigations are all important. What happens to these patients? 80% have independent ambulation, so they're able to kind of walk on their own after six months. And then you've got roughly 20% who continue to have problems um, past six months. So, and some patients may require kind of ventilation um, if they develop respiratory failure. So I hope today's PowerPoint's been useful. So certainly if you have someone with an ascending polyneuropathy, hypo or areflexia following an infection, could be gastrointestinal in most cases in an exam question, could also be respiratory. Think Guillain-Barre syndrome, definitely have that at the forefront of your brain. If a patient presents with an acute flaccid neuromuscular paralysis. Remember the molecular mimicry and that the lipooligosaccharide present in the cell membrane, the outer membrane of, back, of the bacterium Campylobacter is very similar to gangliosides that are chemicals seen, um, sorry, molecules seen in your peripheral nervous system and that your body um, mounts an immune response and can damage um, these gangliosides. And again, anti-GM1 is present in about 60 to 70% of patients with typical Guillain-Barre syndrome, showing that there is definitely an immune-mediated cause for Guillain-Barre syndrome. Management can be with intravenous immunoglobulin, two grams per kilogram for five days. And the second one is plasma exchange that removes complement 
and can remove, remove some of the antibodies from plasma and therefore your two main therapeutic options. The evidence at the moment is that addition of steroids compared to a placebo or in addition to the standard conventional um, standard of care doesn't confer any additional benefit. So that was a presentation on Guillain-Barre syndrome. Thank you for listening.